We praise the Lord this morning. Our applause is for Him. While we appreciate the musicians and their abilities and gifts, their time and talents, uh, we are we're encouraged by our Lord God and we praise Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we commit this time to You. This, this day, this gathering, it belongs to You. For we are Your children, bought with the blood of Your Son, And we praise you, Lord, that you are holy and there is indeed none like you. And that in that holiness, there is also love. A holiness coupled with justice without love is terrifying. But a holiness and a justness in love is life. And we thank you for that life today, Lord, even as we are remembering the many, countless numbers of men and women who have given their lives for our country. We thank you for their act of devotion, their willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice, and their families who prayed over them, who loved and supported them in this endeavor, Lord, who missed them. We pray for comfort for those families. It is not a small thing to make a sacrifice. And Lord, we know this because you gave yourself, not for your friends, but for your enemies. And your sacrifice, your life, and your death, and your resurrection proved to be an incomparable truth. And even as we look at the scriptures today and we see the witness of of John, your spokesman, and the witness of heaven itself, Lord, we pray that hearts would be moved in our gathering Not only would we be moved by the love that you've shown us that would rekindle perhaps a cold love or even a lukewarm love on the behalf of your people, but Lord, that truly you would bring a real spiritual rebirth in the lives of those who are in this room who are hearing us on the live stream or will hear this recording later. Everything that we do ought to be for your glory. And yet, Lord, we confess that that's not the case. We're selfish. We're lazy. Sometimes we're angry. We don't get what we want. We lose perspective. We lose hope. The troubles and worries of this world, they can overwhelm our hearts. And so, Lord, again, as we often do when we gather together, we confess our enduring need for you. Recalibrate our hearts to your truth. Remind us of the hope of heaven and that that guaranteed, that sure trust and confidence that we can have in you. We pray, Lord, that you would move us today away from the sin that has held us, that you would free us from it, and we would run to the cross. We would embrace that fountain that's ever flowing, that cleanses, restores, purifies, and sanctifies. We're mindful, Lord, that we're not the only church in this city, and praise God for that. We rejoice that there are so many gospel-preaching churches in Rapid City, and we pray for their flourishing. We pray that their pulpits will be filled with the flame of your word, and that your spirit will be active in those congregations, both discipling and sanctifying your believers, and also making new disciples. We pray all this in the lovely and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We are called to believe the humble witness 
and the heavenly witness of what we see in our passage this morning. We are in John's gospel. We're working our way through this uh, gospel over however long it takes. We're at chapter 3, and this morning we're going to pick up at verse 22 and work our way through the end of the chapter. And I'm just going to make a huge commercial here, huge in making a point. Don't miss next week. Like this, chapter 4 is amazing. Bring friends next week who don't know the gospel. I mean, not that we try to gear our services towards those specific occasions, because in every uh, Sunday that we gather, we want to reflect and remember on the gospel. We're not saved, and then we don't need the gospel anymore as though we grow out of it. We are in constant need of the gospel. But tomorrow, or next Sunday, I should say, uh, next Sunday, it's going to be so important for people who don't know Jesus to hear how Jesus interacts with them. And I think we'll find a great story in John 4. But today we're here in John chapter 3. And um, we look at this passage here at verse 22 through the end of the chapter in verse 36. And we see that we are being called to believe the humble witness of John and the heavenly witness of Jesus. It's a very simple passage, a very direct passage. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Uh, whether it's digital or print. If you don't have a Bible, we've got these blue Bibles in the chairs around you. Feel free to grab one of those up. That page number, page 888, is where you will find your place in our passage this morning. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. I think there's two sections Verses 22 through 30, 
we have a lot of focus on the baptizer, John the baptizer. And then in verses 31 through 36, we are hearing the words of John the apostle, the one who wrote the gospel. It's his ongoing commentary summarizing all of chapter 3 and especially here in verses 22 through 30. So we're going to look at these two acts, as that were. The first one, verses 22 through 30, we see that knowing Jesus produces a humble witness. Now, where do I get this? Well, we're told that Jesus and John are both baptizing. Now, chapter 4, if you look there, and in verse 1, it says Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So that's what's going on. Jesus' ministry is taking off like a rocket. And people are actually leaving John, and they're going over to Jesus. And a conversation between a Jew and some of John's disciples creates a little bit of friction. It gets them kind of riled up. You know, John's ministry of purification. What is John doing who gave him this authority? And these riled up disciples of John, they kind of come back kicking rocks to John, and they're like, what's the deal, man? The guy, you know, that guy, Jesus, he's now getting a larger following than you are. And there's a little bit of jealousy here. It's well-founded. They love John. They think that John is unique and that he is being used by God. And so there is this tension as people are leaving John to follow Jesus. And his disciples are like, what gives? John's response teaches us so much. It teaches us so much about his knowledge of God and how that shaped his worldview. And what I hope is today, by us learning what John the baptizer understood about Jesus, it too will shape our whole worldview in such a way that we too can say, he must increase, but I must decrease. So let's dig into this a little bit. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus has ended as we are brought in verse 22 after this. What precedes that is the conversation with Nicodemus. John, the apostle, takes us from Jerusalem. Now we're out into the Judean countryside where both Jesus and John are baptizing. John's baptism, as we saw, was a baptism of repentance. It was a, it was a physical washing of water to represent a spiritual preparation. People who were Jews were wanting to sanctify themselves and kind of set themselves apart in expectation of the coming kingdom that John had been preaching about. It was a ceremonial cleansing. Jesus' disciples were performing the same kind of water baptism. We know this because in Acts 1.5, the spirit, the spirit baptism that Jesus was going to bring didn't come until after his resurrection. But I don't want us to overlook a simple fact. We see that Jesus is in Jerusalem in John 3, the beginning. This Pharisee and Nicodemus comes to him. Now we're in the Judean countryside. People are leaving the city, traveling to the countryside to find Jesus and John in order to be baptized. 
there appears to be some kind of spiritual awakening that is taking place. God is on the move, and people are inconveniencing themselves to get near the action, to go and prepare themselves for the coming kingdom. And I wonder if we are seeing our society deteriorate, and it is discouraging us. We see the abundance of evil in our world, and I wonder if our yearning for those golden days, as if they ever were, is really just more about our own comfort rather than true godliness and righteousness. The only answer to that question lies within our own hearts and our homes. Are we doing spiritual good to other people? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves for the gospel? To go out into the wilderness to find people, to break the normal routine of our lives, to get closer to the Word made flesh. Are we reading Scripture? Are we memorizing it together? Are we sharing the Gospel with our brothers and sisters, going two by two? Are we reading spiritual books and discussing them? Do we invite people to church? Are we serving in our church? Are we praying together? Are we caring for those who are grieving and hurting in the name of Jesus? To me, that's what discipleship is. We're helping one another take another step of obedience to Jesus. So it means we confront someone who's talking with a potty mouth. Brother, that's not how we should talk. That kind of joking is not to be in the Christian. It's vocabulary. Let's grow together in this. Let's talk about this. Let's read together about this. If we discover that we aren't doing spiritual good, if you do an assessment this afternoon, how am I doing spiritual good? How am I helping another person take one step closer towards Jesus? And if you find out that that's not taking place, maybe that indicates that we're not moved by the fact that millions of people haven't heard the gospel and they remain under God's wrath. Maybe that shows us that we don't understand that believers, believers around us are struggling to resist temptation and grow in their discipleship, and they need just someone to encourage them to just walk with them a little bit. Brethren, if this is the nature of your heart, let me just ask you, beg God to change it, and he will. Ask him to give you a heart for sinners, a godly sorrow, and ability to see them as Jesus did, as sheep who are lost without a shepherd, who are vulnerable, who are in danger, who have no protection, no hope of life. Fast and pray that God will pour out his spirit on sinners. John bears witness about Jesus. Verses 25 through 30, we've already discussed the problems that prompted their question. And so let's look at verses 27 through 30. John is very quick to point out, fellas, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's, he's very singular in his understanding. My whole purpose for being is to make much of him. That's it. The only reason I exist is to point people to Jesus. This ministry is not mine. It's given to me by God. In his commentary on John, 
D.A. Carson says, God's sovereignty stands hidden behind all human claims. For a human being does not have anything but what he has received. Deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and unfaithfulness, but the worst form of our human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. John understood, guys, it's not about me, it's about him. He was not going to let anyone, even the accolades of his own followers, turn him from his mission. He was that devoted and that intentional. And I think this is a helpful mindset for every elder, every pastor, that God places his ministers where he sees fit and for his divine purposes. And this also applies to every member of this church. We are one body, yet we are uniquely gifted. Not all of us are hands, not all of us are eyes. But we are all gifted, and God has placed us here in South Canyon for His glory and the good of others. How might this view change your thinking? That it's all about Jesus. He must increase. I need to be about His work. How might that change your thinking, the way you use your time and other resources? Verse 28, John reminds his disciples of his earlier testimony. Guys, I told you this already. His knowledge that Jesus is God's chosen one makes it easy to reaffirm reaffirm his own position as a forerunner. John is doing this. I know this to be true about Jesus. He is the chosen one of God. He is the one I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is far superior than I am. And man, that just changes everything. That reorders an entire life around this guy rather than around us. The problem is we struggle with this understanding of Jesus because we so often want to dethrone him and put ourselves in the place of sovereign. My will be done on earth. My plans be accomplished Hey, I need, to, I need to get a whole church to think I'm the cream of the crop, the best of the best. I need to collect for myself a bunch of yes men and women. I need to accomplish these goals. And John is not at all biting on that hook. He, he has such an intimacy with Jesus, such a convictional belief that he is unique, that who can rival him? What else am I supposed to do but just do my job and do it with joy? I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to go to the cross and save men's souls. All I have to do is keep pointing them to the one. And this is John's conviction. This is his belief. He uses this metaphor in verse 29 of a bride and his friend. Whose day is the wedding for? Now, I know in our culture it's all about the bride. But in the, in the Bible culture, it's all about the groom. Sorry, brides. It's all about him. No. So in his analogy, in his metaphor, 
John is making the point that the best man doesn't walk away with the bride. His greatest joy is seeing his friend get his bride and seeing his friend make vows to her. He rejoices in the good that's taking place in another's life. He understands that what's front and center are these two. He stands over here. And that is not threatening. That is freeing because he knows his role. And we have to adopt the same mindset. The cross is where Jesus demonstrated his love for the bride when he willingly gave his life to sinners. In the Old Testament, there's many references of God as being uh, faithful, even though his bride was unfaithful, Israel. Proverbs 7, 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. John knows this about his ministry. I'm here for a flash. And that's okay. I understand my role. I delight in this. I can keep doing this all day long and not at all feel any jealousy. Why? Because I know who Jesus is. I know the role he came to fulfill, and I know my role. And that frees me up from all kinds of distractions, that I must compete, that I must be better. No, John says finally, and he states this overriding principle of ministry, he must increase, but I must decrease. God has ordained that Jesus must rise and John must fade into the background. One commentator said this, few greater mottos for ministry have ever been uttered. He must increase, but I must decrease. Only a great man can accept his own demise with joy. And I just wonder, you know, checking us, our hearts, we're all about performance, right? We want to hear an attaboy, well done. We want to achieve, we want to succeed, we want to accomplish things. And when someone else gets the glory, how do we respond? When we're doing a task, but a manager gets the credit because we're on his team and our flow chart, we're downstream from things. Are we good with the fact that we did our job as unto the Lord, or do we want something more? John's humility comes from a convictional understanding of his purpose. And brothers and sisters, I don't think it's hard to be humble when you stand in the presence of the Most High God. John knew his role was to make way for the Lord, not build a platform for himself. It was to prepare people to follow Jesus, to see Jesus and his ministry increase even as John's faded. You see, John loved God's kingdom more than he loved an audience. Now think about this for a moment. What's the alternative? Hey, John, you realize that the guy that you prayed over, baptized, is now getting more followers than you. Oh, okay, thanks for the warning. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to just totally stop talking about him. We're going to stop telling everybody he's the greater one who's come into the world, and then we're going to have to find a new Messiah. What's John's alternative? He understands this is the way. There's only one path for him. 
and it's to move toward Jesus. And the same is true for every single one of us. Our only path forward is one in which Jesus is being followed. There's no alternative way to fulfill our calling. I know we've got businessmen in here. We've got all kinds of skilled trades and technical people. We've got retirees and we've got young aspiring students. Let me just tell you, your calling is to be a follower of Jesus. You just do something to make money, to live in this world. It doesn't matter what that is. Now, I understand the ramifications and the realities of that, teaching and all the kinds of work that's out there and the, the cost of living. But just think about how these truths that we see here in John's own example shape the way we live. In his booklet on discerning the call to ministry, Dave Harvey provides some helpful insights on what true humility is. He says, true humility serves where there is a need, not just where you can express your gifts. I'm going to rattle off several more. Serve to make those around you a success, not to develop your own success. Be just as happy to use service to address your weaknesses as hone your strengths. Seek by your own joy to make the service of those around you a joy. Use the influence of your leadership to promote godliness in service, not your own agenda. Serve with excellence, diligence, and faithfulness for the attention of Christ, not others. Walk boldly on the path of sacrifice and tread cautiously on the path of promotion. A sign of humility is joyfully stepping back to let another step forward. The result of the love and the gratitude that John has received is the celebration of seeing and hearing God's work wherever it takes place. You know, South Canyon is not an island here in Rapid City. We rejoice in flourishing congregations. We want to see faithful pastors become engaging preachers. We want to see congregations grow with new converts who are being discipled. We are not threatened by the growth of other churches. We celebrate the expansion of God's kingdom because we celebrate the kingdom. How does this reflect our approach to serving? We move from John's words to his disciples to John the Apostle's words to us. Verse 31 through 36, we see here that we are to trust the heavenly witness, which leads to eternal life. So we saw first that we were to trust the humble witness who's testifying, and now we are to trust the heavenly witness, which leads to eternal life. I believe these verses are the apostles as he testifies to the preeminence of Christ, and he does it in three areas. If you notice in these verses, he who comes from above is above all, verse 31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Twice in, those, in just that one verse, John emphasizes the person of Jesus as supreme. He is above all. 
If there is none greater than John the Baptist among men, which is what Jesus will say in another gospel, and John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is from above and thus above all, then we should heed his testimony and recognize Jesus' superiority. It also will appear in verse 35, where the Father has given all things into the Son's hand. And so, if this one came from heaven to earth, where heaven is understood as the seat of truth, of knowledge, of power, Earth can never attain what heaven has. It can never acquire what heaven possesses. It can never ascend to heaven. It is broken. What is of the earth is earthly. We are dependent on revelation from God in order to know truth because there is not truth in us. Even though we are made in the image of God, sin has corrupted us. So John is telling us the person of Jesus that he is above all. And then he says in verses 32 through 34, we need to trust the words of Jesus. Because Jesus comes from above and is supreme over all, we should trust his witness. He is an eyewitness in the room of heaven, in the throne room. John begins with the negative in verse 31, right? He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, which reminds us of verse 6 of chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What does the earthly message tell us? The earthly message that we hear in our culture is there is no God. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you could die. Suck all that you can out of life. Grab it, experience it, no holds barred, chase your dreams. That's the message. It takes many different forms, but all of the earthly messages reject the heavenly witness as we learned in John 3. Look at verses 19 and 20, just a few lines above. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Friend, let me just tell you, don't trust the earthly message. Positively, we see in verses 32 and 33 and 34 that Jesus is the one who comes from heaven. He is above all. He witnesses to what he has seen and heard. Because God is understood in the ancient Israel mind and the the Middle Eastern mind that God is truth and Jesus comes from God, then that means Jesus is truth. Verse 34, for he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Spirit is this accompanying aid for Jesus to ensure that God's truth is being communicated in power and glory. And therefore, we're to trust Jesus' words because he comes from the God of truth. And he's been given God's spirit to make sure that he's conveying the truth. John recognized something. The Old Testament prophet would see the spirit of God come upon him for a time and a season to speak God's truth to a people. And then the spirit would leave. But that was not going to be the case of Jesus He has the Spirit without measure. He has no limitations. Every moment of every day, the Spirit was controlling the Son. 
He had uninterrupted fellowship with God, which meant he had uninterrupted access to God. Galatians 5 tells the Christian, walk not in the flesh, nor do fulfill its passions, right? Galatians 5 is calling us to resist the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. Now, here's the reality, both for John the Baptist, even John the Apostle, the Old Testament prophets, and for us as Christians today. None of us will perfectly walk in the Spirit and have it without measure like Jesus did. Again, another sign of his uniqueness. But we do understand what John says by examining our own lives when the Spirit is on us in such a way that he does give us the power to resist temptation, to turn away from sin. When he gives us the wisdom to speak to someone who is in the bitter throes of grief and mourning, to pray, to recall scriptures that were unrehearsed up till that moment to answer someone about what struggles they may be having or to speak a word of wisdom. That's the Spirit's work in us. What was an abiding reality for Jesus is a sporadic experience for us. He had been given the Spirit without limit. Now look at verse 35, the role of Jesus. We're to trust the person of Jesus the words of Jesus. Now look at what verse 35 says. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This Jesus that we struggle with. This Jesus that you've used his name as a curse word. This Jesus who has become a butt of jokes. Who's been um, emasculated and, and softened and toned down to this tame little guy. This Jesus, the Bible says, has all authority. We have to ask for things in prayer. Jesus has every resource at his fingertips. The Son is preeminent because he comes from above. Jesus is preeminent because he has the Spirit of God without limit. And Jesus is preeminent because he rules all things. How are you and I to respond to this heavenly witness? The apostle's conclusion is direct. Look at verse 36. It is simply this. Believe in Jesus. I know this is not a flashy message. It's not been filled with lots of anecdotes, lots of illustrations, personal stories, warm, stirring accounts. It's just simple truth of God's word. And we come to the point where John the apostle is applying his message with such Precision and conciseness. This is what happens when you understand all this. Whoever believes in the Son, guess what? They have eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This two ways to live. It's either in submission to our Creator or in rebellion against Him. The first will lead to life, the second to death. John begins with the positive. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, verse 33. And here in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Believing in Jesus, that He is God's bridge between sinners and a holy God, that Jesus is the only means of forgiveness for those sins, that Jesus is the gift of eternal life, 
and that God will give you a spiritual rebirth and deliver you from his wrath by putting your trust in Jesus. Then we see two examples of John's negativity, understanding, not his negativity, but his understanding that human hearts are fraught with sin. In verse 32, he says, those who will not receive his testimony. And here in verse 36, the one who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you hear what God is saying? Our default setting is to reject the person, the words, and the rule of God's own Son. We reject the Son instead of kissing Him and paying respect to Him. We curse God and deny His existence so that we can live in our sins because the light of Jesus' truth exposes our sin and we don't like that. And that's true. None of us like it. Every Christian should raise their hand. Did you like it when the gospel convicted you of your sin? No, we did not. But thankfully, God's grace is greater than our sin. And His love draws us to Him with such a compelling power that we see sin does lead to death and we long for the life that's found in Jesus. We cry out for that. We we need to see that rejecting Him means there is no hope. We need to see the desperation that is truly at play here. Life and death, your life and your death, hang in the balance. We need to plead that God would give us believing ears and eyes and hearts in order that we might escape the wrath of God which is coming. Last week, we learned that God loves sinners in spite of themselves. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. As I've said before, this is seen in the cross, but we must understand that this is no game to God. For Jesus, God's wrath is not the outworking of some impersonal principle of retribution. Right? You keyed my car, and I found out it was you, I'm coming back. I'm going to spray paint your car. I'm going to throw a rock through the windshield. This is not personal retribution on God's behalf. It is a personal reality. God personally resists those who resist Him. Let me say this again. God resists those who resist Him. That ought to terrify us. Unlike our fitful and often uncontrolled emotion, God's wrath is without sin or error in its exercise. But God is not entirely passive and endlessly passive about the presence of evil in His world or the spite it shows toward His great glory. God is not mocked. It is a dreadful thing, the Scriptures tell us, to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul in Romans 1 recognizes that the wrath of God can already be seen at work in our world when God gives up people 
to the bitter fruit of their own evil choices. In Romans 1, 24 and 26. And that, that is just a tip of the iceberg. A foreshadowing of the wrath to come. I am not trying to scare, scare anybody out of hell and into heaven. I am I'm simply saying these are the realities that our world masks every day. We're all going to go to eat somewhere soon. We're all going to go spend some time with family. We may go get some Memorial Day deals at the furniture store or electronics or something like that. All this stuff masks what's really at stake here. I can't express it enough. We have to wrestle with the fact that today is the day of salvation. We are not promised tomorrow. None of us are. We hear these words, and God is inviting us to come to Him with full faith in the person, the words, and the rule of Jesus to bow the knee before Him and say, He must increase, but I must decrease. We are called to believe the humble witness of John and the heavenly witness of Jesus. Do you? Let's pray. Lord, this is indeed a heavy word because it, it reminds us that to reject Jesus means we remain under the wrath of God. It means that we will not see eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here in our midst this morning who do not know you, that your spirit would indeed bring about a spiritual rebirth in them today. And if not today, Lord, then that seed would be planted and we would be able to see fruit being born in the days and months to come. Lord, this word is also a great word of hope. Because if our default setting is to resist the Son, to fight against the power that comes from heaven, and to know that you have given us the ability to believe these words about the Son, to believe the witness of John the baptizer, John the apostle, and Jesus himself, that he truly is divine. We have experienced grace upon grace and a hope. We have a certain hope, a confident hope, just as John the Baptist understood Jesus must increase and he would decrease. His role was to point to him. We too can have that same confidence that eternal life is ours through Christ. And our role in this world is simply to tell as many people as possible the good news that Jesus saves sinners because he loves them. Lord, I pray that you would stir hearts on both sides of this issue. Those that see the cross with a word of hope, a word of salvation, of redemption and reconciliation, and those who see the cross as folly. We pray that your work would be done. We need to hear and believe the testimony of the one who came from heaven, the one who is light and truth. Help us to hear these things today. In Jesus' name, amen.